0: There is a day coming when you are going to stand before the throne of the judge of all the earth, the Lord Jesus. And his eyes will be like blazing fire. And you will be in this vast, innumerable crowd of all mankind bowing before him. And there you are. Before the one who knows all your actions. And all your words and all your thoughts and all your desires and all your attitudes and all your secrets, and you're going to answer to him, and he's going to say to you either, "Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the earth, or he's going to say, "Depart from me, I never knew you." now that is ahead. For each of us, and knowing that is ahead for each of us, how can we live with confidence and without fear? Well, that's the question of one John, chapter four, verse 17. Let's turn now to one John, chapter four and verse 17. 17. One John four, verse 17. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment, because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not Made perfect in love. John is raising this issue that I've just tried to raise with you of there's a day of judgment coming. We're living in the light of it. How do we live with confidence and not with fear? And his answer is all to do with love. His whole letter really is giving us the answer to that because as you'll know by now, I hope and be clear on if you've been listening for weeks as we've been going through this letter for weeks, The letter's all about this. Chapter five, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing it so we may know we have eternal life and we can face that day with confidence. And so we may know he's given us three tests. The test of belief. Are you really trusting in the Lord Jesus? Do you have right belief about him? The test of obedience. Can that belief be seen in a life of obeying God? Not never sinning, not never failing, but a life where you are persevering and seeking to obey. And it's also seen in love. And John particularly picks out love for your fellow Christian, what he calls your brother. Uh, He's not excluding women there. He's meaning brothers or sisters. The church is a family. And today we're focusing on that third test. We're taking the love test again. It's come up, I think, twice, maybe three times already in the letter. But we're back to the love test. And the aim of this evening is to prompt you and me to take the love test again. But before we take the test, we're going to remind ourselves what causes love. And in the process, I hope, reassure ourselves of God's love. So that we can, with confidence, with with rightly placed confidence, approach the test centre and take the test. So we're going to be in chapter four, verses 19 to 21. Verse 17 and 18 have set the context. There's a day of judgment coming. And verses 19 to 21 are the test centre. So we can check we're ready for that day. Let's read them. Verse 19. We love Because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must love his brother. If you're on the church mailing list and you've got the notice sheet, you'll see that the structure I'm intending to take this evening. It's very simple. First of all, to look at the root of love. That's where we're reassuring ourselves as we approach the test centre. And then to look at the fruit of love. That's where we're doing the actual testing. So we begin with the root of love in verse 19. Now, there are various types of love in the world. There's what the Bible calls natural affections. That's love for our family, for those who are close to us. There's romantic love. There's all sorts of love. But the love John is talking about, the love of the Christian has just one cause. And it's in verse 19. It's very simple. We love because he first loved us. Let's start this evening with actually the second half of that verse. He, God, first loved us. His love comes first. And oh, it's so important that it comes first. We would get nowhere if that didn't come first. I wonder if you remember the Northern Ireland peace process. I suppose it was the 1990s, was it? I don't remember. It's quite a while ago. And why was it so hard to get that peace process started? Well, one of the many reasons was the difficulty who'll make the first move. The unionists said, we'll work with them if they'll give up their guns first. And the IRA said, we'll give up our guns if they work with us first. (laughs) Now, I wonder which one you think is reasonable. Seems to me it's obvious that it's reasonable to say we'll only work with the terrorists if they'll give up their guns first. Why work with people holding guns behind their back? But the point is, each one said the other one must make the first move. And so it didn't get anywhere for a while. Who will move first? Thank God we haven't got that problem because he made the first move. He didn't wait for us. He'd still be waiting. While we were still unloving, while we were not budging from our rebellion against him, he first loved us. How did he first love us? Well, we would better have a think about God's love. What is this love of God? Well, the Bible talks about God's love for mankind in general, in some places. Uh, you can probably think of the most obvious place, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3:16: "For God so loved," well actually, more accurately, for God in this way loved the world, that He gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life." That's love for mankind in general. Or you might think of Jesus looking at the crowds as he was going to Jerusalem to be crucified. And he said he's full of compassion. And he said, I've longed to gather you to myself, just like a hen gathers its cheeks under its wings. But you wouldn't. You wouldn't let me gather you. In fact, they crucified him and some of those that he loved never repented of that. There's a love that comes first, clearly. And it's a love for mankind in general. But we can go further than that. Let's look at verse 19 again. It says, God first loved us. Who is the us? Well, it's who John is writing to. And who is this letter addressed to? Well, chapter five, verse 13 tells us we've just read it a few minutes ago to you who believe in the name of the son of God. Here the us that God first loved is believers. When the Bible talks about God's love, it has various ways of talking about his love. It talks about his love for all mankind, as we've just seen. But it most often talks about his love for his people, for his chosen ones. I'll give you just a few examples. The Bible is littered with them. But here's just a few. You might want to turn with me to them, uh, although you need to be fairly quick, because I'm just going to turn very quickly to Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7. Verses seven and eight. The Israelites here are in the wilderness, just about to enter the promised land. And Moses reminds them, Deuteronomy seven, verse seven. The Lord did not set his affections on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. And kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. So, yes, God. God loves all mankind. And he did back then. But there were these people, it says, he set his affections on thats something particular. And it even says he chose them. And it says it wasn't that there was anything great about them. In fact, they were a prophetic load of slaves. A tiny weak group of people and they weren't exactly being good about being slaves. They were a bunch of grumblers too. That God somehow set his love on them and chose them and decided to save them and make them particularly his. And the New Testament consistently uses that as a pattern of our salvation. So for example, Ephesians 1. Mister. We've read verse three at the start of the service, but now verse four, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will. And we could read on into chapter two and we find it's just like Deuteronomy. It says it's not because there was anything good and desirable in you. No, this is just like with Israel in the Old Testament. Despite us, for some reason, God set his affection on us and he loved us and he chose us and he saved us. And it's personal. It's personal. The believer in Jesus can say, this is about me. Just turn back one page. Well, if your Bible's like mine, it's just one page to Galatians 1 verse 20. And the believer can say, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. It's specific and it's personal. A little example to, to hopefully bring it home. Imagine a husband uh, has uh, a wife says to her husband, do you love me? And the husband says to his wife, of course I love you. I'm a Christian. I'm to love all my neighbours. I do love all my neighbours. I love Mrs Smith down the road. I love Miss Mackenzie round the corner. And I love you. I love all my neighbours equally. Is she a happy wife? <laughs> well, no, of course not. Of course not. Of course, she wants her. She wants her husband to love the neighbors generally. But she wants to know he has a particular love for her. And because he loved her particularly, he chose her and he's committed himself to her and he's not going to leave her. Christian brothers and sisters, we have something more than God's general love for mankind. He knew you. Before the world began, he knew you. And despite knowing your sin and despite knowing there's nothing particularly desirable about you or me, for some reason, he loved us. And he desired to save you and he determined to save you. And he sent his son to save you and he sent his son with the definite purpose of paying for your sin so that once his son had paid it, you wouldn't have to pay it. He didn't just come generally, I hope someone's going to be done some good from this. In fact, I'll just write a blank check and hope someone will fill their name in on it. No, no. No. He went to the cross for you. And now God has brought you into his family and he's committed to you. And so, in those well-known words, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God first loved you. But let's look at what our verse says before that. So we've started with the end of the verse. We can now move forward in the verse. What's our verse say? We love because he first loved us. Because because it's the hinge that links the two parts of the verse. So it better be a strong hinge. Otherwise, the verse doesn't work. Why does God first loving us cause us to love? Well, we've got this because in the middle. What is the because? What's the hinge the verse turns around? Well, John gives us two reasons, a two-part hinge. And one of the reasons is being born of God. John in his letter keeps talking about being born of God. It's this repeated phrase. For example, four verse seven. Everyone who loves has been born of God. This repeated phrase that God's love has caused us to be born again. And this is needed if we're going to be loving and it will make us loving. Here's an example. I've used it before, but you've probably forgotten it. It was quite a while ago Uh, when I was a teacher. One of my pupils, his mother was a heroin addict. And he was fostered. And on days when he was going to go and visit his mother in the evening. Oh, he used to be excited because he loved his mother. You know, she treated him terribly. But he loved to go and see his mother. But she didn't, sadly, she didn't love him in return. Well, it didn't seem so, the way she treated him. But he still loved her. Why didn't she love him in return? You say it's obvious. It's because she's a heroin addict. Her addiction has twisted her and broken her. Oh, yes, that's right. Quite right. And we have been twisted and broken by our sin addiction. And so we are not going to love God in return, however much he loves us, unless he changes us and gets to work in us and gives us new hearts. We need a love that isn't just an example to respond to, but that works in us and changes us. In other words, gives us new birth. And then the example can work. And so we get that in John as well. There's a two part hinge. that because is because God's love works in us and gives us new birth. But then because now we've got new birth. Oh, we can respond to the example. God's love appeals to us and it appeals like this. Chapter four, verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We're being told, look at God's love. Think about God's love. Oh, by the way, you look at it at the cross and turn that over in your mind. Doesn't it appeal to you? And doesn't it prompt you to love because he first loved you? So what we have in verse 19 isn't a command. Well, it would be a very good command, but it isn't a command. It's a description This personal saving love of God, it does make his people love. It isn't unrequited love. Do you know the word unrequited? Love that isn't returned. Oh, so many stories and films and paintings and songs have been about unrequited love. Some of you might know Les Miserables. And there is this poor girl, Fontaine, and she loves Marius. And she sings about her love in this most poignant song where she sings about her experiences with Marius. And then oh, the song sort of falls through the floor as she sings. It's only in my dreams because he doesn't love me back. Unrequited love. But God's love isn't unrequited. Not this love, not this determining to save choosing love. No, we love because he first loved us. It will happen. So have you received God's love? Do you love because God first loved you? How do you know if you love? How do you tell if you've got real love? Well, now we'll move on. That was the root of love. Now we must move on to the fruit of love. Uh, We've, I hope, gained reassurance. Now we move into the test centre. Now, please do note, this is the fruit of love. It isn't how we get the love. It's not the cause of love. This isn't how we take in the love. It's how we know we have taken it in. How we take it in is by trust in the Lord Jesus. But when we trusted him, it will show it must show. How does it? Well, John tells us here very simply. Love for God will lead to love for your brother. Remember here, he's he's using brother to mean your fellow Christian. He's not excluding women here, brother or sister, those in within the Christian family. And John is very definite. God's love will lead to you love. Who will you love? He doesn't say in verse 19, does he? It's obvious that it must include love for God. He's loved you. you. You must love him. But it's easy to claim I love God. And if you just claim I love God, John says to you, verse 20. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Uh, By the way, this is one of three liar statements in 1 John. John is a blunt chap. So in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, if you claim to know God, but carry on in your sin carelessly, liar. In chapter two, verse 22, he says, if you deny that Jesus is the Christ, you're a liar. And here he says, if you claim to love God, but you don't love your brother, you're a liar. And do notice that he says brother singular. And again in verse 20, uh, 21, and he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Why does he say it's Singular. Because it's very easy to claim to have love for a set of people in general. While not really nothing, certain people in particular. So, for example, imagine a teacher says, oh, I love children. Wouldn't be a teacher if I didn't love children. But the teacher clearly doesn't like that child who is disruptive in class. And that child who's a cheeky know-it-all. And that child who's got a sulky look on her face. Well... The claim to love children is rather theoretical and hollow and so john says your brother or your sister if someone is your brother or your sister you must love him you must love her the bible won't allow you to say i love my fellow christians except that one just not that one it won't let you say that Now, as I'm preaching, I can't see your faces and I don't even know who's listening. But I expect that you all agree that love is a good thing. Uh, People generally are quite happy with sermons on love, aren't they? But do you do it? Do you have this love? When this I I think everyone agrees. Yes. Yes. I ought to love my fellow Christian. But when there's friction between you and a fellow Christian Do you actually put this love into practice? So we'd better be practical in our tests because everyone can agree with the test in theory. But it's a very different matter to do it in practice. So let's get some examples. Now, obviously, I'm going to have to be selective. It's a massive subject. The Bible's got so much to say on it. I'm I'm just going to select some examples that I hope will be helpful for us to take the love test. And do make sure you take the love test. I'm not just preaching a sermon because we're supposed to preach sermons. I'm preaching this so that you and I actually take the love test. That's why it's here in the Bible. Not just so we hear it, but so we do it. So we test ourselves. So here's one example. The main people John had in mind in verse 20 are the false teachers who'd been troubling the church. As you read through one John, you find there were false teachers around. They've been causing trouble in the church and they spoke spoken in an impressive way. And they sounded really good with their impressive teaching they had. And they had great claims to spiritual experiences and that they loved the unseen God. And John says, liars. You can tell. You can tell the liars because they don't love their brother. Well, how did he know they don't love their brother? Well, one of the ways is in chapter two, verse 19. Just have a look at chapter two, verse 19. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. How does John know they don't love their brother? Because they walked out on them. And you don't walk out on people you love. Isn't that fairly straightforward? You don't walk out on people you love. You're committed to them. Now, before uh, people jump out of their seats, I am not saying that anyone who ever leaves a church is unloving and therefore not a Christian. I'm not saying that. But there are right and wrong ways of doing it. Let's get some examples. I- imagine this. A husband leaves his wife and goes off to live on his own. And you say to him, why did you leave your wife? And he says, oh, you know what she was always doing. She was always hanging the toilet roll the wrong way round on the toilet roll holder. Do you know what I mean? The toilet roll hanging down the back. The bit that hangs down was down the back. It should be down the front, shouldn't it? She just kept on doing that. Couldn't be dealing with that. So I've left her. Does he love his wife? (laughs) Ridiculous, isn't it? Walking out on his wife for a trivial reason. I'm afraid to say people walk out on churches for trivial reasons. They never think it's trivial. They always maintain it's some big principle. But it often is trivial. Do we love a brother or sister if we will walk out on them? And often have virtually nothing to do with them ever after. Or what about this? I remember some people had left the church and the minister commented, when people leave a dog, you'd think they'd pat it on the head, at least. If it's a dog, they'd at least pat it on the head before they go. But these people, they'd left without saying anything. They didn't even tell us they've left. We just after a while realized they've left. They didn't even say anything. If you love your brother, or if you love God, you'll love your brother or sister. And if you love your brother or sister, you'll treat them like a brother or sister. you are treat them like family. And yes, sometimes family do get parted, but they're sad about it and they're careful about how they do it. If they're a decent family, surely. OK, there's one example. Here's another Well, It's actually a whole set of examples. It's uh, what was read to us. One Corinthians 13. Isn't that the obvious place to go to get the love test? One Corinthians 13. What's it like to love your brother? Oh, well, we've got a whole load of examples here. I'll just pick two. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love is patient. Oh, well, we don't have to move on. Let's just think about that. Love is patient. Your fellow Christian might have different faults from you. Your fellow Christian might fall from different sins from you. And because they're different from you, maybe you notice them more than your blind spots. Maybe they irritate you more. Your fellow Christian may rub you up the wrong way, may have a very different personality from you, different strengths and weaknesses. Your fellow Christian may be less well-taught than you, may actually respond in a wrong way to certain issues going on, and hasn't learnt yet how to respond rightly to a particular course of action. Does that prompt you to feel superior? Or does it prompt you to be patient In a non-condescending way. That that latter part is important. Patient in a non-condescending, feeling superior sort of way. Patience. Patience is a sign of love for your brother or sister. Patience is a very difficult thing. But it should be there when the love of God has got into us. Oh, he's been so patient with you. I know he's been very patient with me. Let's see one more example from one Corinthians 13. Love is kind. Verse four. Love is not rude. Verse five. The two go together, don't they? Do you know what it means? If someone's called a snowflake <laughs> yeah, today, some people are called snowflakes uh, It is reckoned that certain groups of people are snowflakes. I won't say which ones because it's not really fair on them. Actually, it's it's unkind to them. Actually, uh, But people are called snowflakes. What it's reckoned is they're always taking offence. They're so easily hurt if they if they're confronted with an opinion different from theirs, they melt like a snowflake at the slightest disagreement. And what the world is doing there with this idea of snowflakes is it's turning Christian love upside down. The world puts all the emphasis on my right not to be offended, my right not to be hurt. My right not to be troubled by someone disagreeing with me. But, and you think, well, there's something half right and half wrong there. Yes, because what it's done is it's taken Christian love and turned it upside down because Christian love is the other way up. Christian love is not about your right not to be hurt. It's about my responsibility not to hurt others. My responsibility not to cause offence, apart from that necessary offence of the gospel. My responsibility to be considerate and think about how my words affect others. And not to dismiss that by saying, oh, I'm a person who calls a spade a spade and they ought to get some backbone. Now, that's just an excuse for being unloving and unthoughtful. Now, there's obviously far more in 1 Corinthians 13, and it would be the subject of several sermons. But uh, just sometime go through it and ask yourself, am I self-seeking? Do I prefer to talk about myself or to bring out what others have to say? Am I keeping a record of any wrongs that someone has done to me? Or am I actually saying I'll put them out of my mind? Am I easily angered? Uh, Go through 1 Corinthians 13 sometime and ask yourself those questions. Uh, Take the love test from 1 Corinthians 13. We must take the test. Uh, God wouldn't have given us one John if we weren't supposed to take the test. But I think that leads on to another place. Uh, I'll just give you one more example for this love test to see what love is like. And actually, we're not going to turn to it. So I'm just going to describe it to you. In Matthew five, Jesus says, if your fellow Christian has something against you, go and sort it out. Then in Matthew 18, he says, if you've got something against your fellow Christian, go and sort it out. Now, do you see do you see that what he's done? He said, whichever side the fault is on or whichever side you think it's on, be eager to seek reconciliation. By the way, most of the time we don't need to go and sort it out. We need to just put it out of our mind and move on. Uh, But when you can't put it out of your mind, you need to sort it out. But the point is this. Be eager to seek reconciliation, whichever side the fault is on. And I bring this in here because... We all fail some way, don't we, when we look at 1 Corinthians 13. We all find we've fallen short of it in some way. The description is so exalted and we're so down here. And the question is, what do you do about it? What do you do about it? If there's something got between you and a fellow Christian, are you eager to get it sorted and to get reconciliation? Are you eager to get the relationship back on track and on a good footing? Will you do the hard work of working at that? Or would you be happy with just keeping your distance from that person? Would actually keeping your distance from that person to you be preferable to actually having to admit any fault on your part? And if that's the case, can you really claim to love him or love her if you're happy to keep your distance? And if you don't love him or love her, you know, don't you, what one John says, you know, to put it more accurately, what God in his word says. If you don't love him or her. You don't love God. And if you don't love God, you haven't first been loved by God. And that is the biggest problem you could ever have. And that needs you to seek and call out for God's love in a repentant sort of way. There is the love test. And we must take this test seriously. I think we're all too easy at sweeping it aside and making excuses. I'll give you an example. And this is a made up example. I've made it up, but it's sadly Rather believable. Liam is a respected member of his church. He's a very respected member of his church. He preaches sometimes. And his prayers and his contributions to home groups are really appreciated. And if you go around his house, you'll see the Christian books there on the bookshelf. And not just on the bookshelf. They're, they're out on the table because he does actually read them. But there's a person he's fallen out with. And he will not get reconciliation with that person. He there's a grievance he's been holding on to for years and he will not let it go and he will not mend the rift. Now, which do you give most weight to in your mind? His church record, all those ways he's impressive at church or that lack of love. Which figures more strongly in your mind? And which does the Bible give most weight to his church record or that evident lack of love? You know, the answer from one John four and we could say from one Corinthians 13 and a whole host of other places. But I think we tend to say, oh, he must be a Christian because look at what he does. And look, look at this interesting. Oh, He reads those Christian books and he says the right things. And the Bible says if he's not loving his brother. Then he doesn't love God. And if he doesn't love God, then he hasn't first received God's love. And that is the evidence that God takes note of, not how he appears in church. We must realize it is possible to do a lot in the church, to be really into Christian doctrine, to be interested in Christian issues and to be hollow. To be a hollow person. There isn't genuineness on the inside. Like a shop mannequin, a realistic shop mannequin, looking human, but there's no life inside. We need this evidence of new birth, of new life, of the spirit's work. Here's the evidence. And you must have this evidence. You love your fellow Christian. Because God first loved you. Oh, by the way, this also works the other way around. Oh, this works to reassure that person who is. Not impressive and doesn't really feel at home in the church and maybe feels rather unaccepted. And maybe you compare, you compare yourself with others in the church and think, oh, <laughs> I'm nothing compared with them. And you think, what can I contribute to this church? I've got nothing I can contribute. And, oh, dear, I can't pray those impressive prayers. And I can't think what to say in home group. And Who am I? But you love. And you care for your fellow Christian and you put yourself out for them. And God says, there's the evidence. There's the evidence that there's my child whom I have first loved with an irreversible, inseparable, security giving love. We started with verse 17, didn't we? We started with there's the day of judgment ahead. Verse 17 says, We can have confidence as we look ahead to that day. Do you have confidence as you look ahead to that day? How can you have confidence? By being safe in the loving hands of God. And how can you know that you're safe in the loving hands of God? Do you love because he first loved you? Let's pray. Father, please, may that message from your word not break any bruised reeds or snuff out any dimly smoking wicks. May it not hurt those who are your children and yet are conscious that oh, for all of your children, how love is still so deficient, still has so much further to go. Please, Father, protect them from from misunderstanding and misapplying. And please, Father, yet on the other hand, may your word uh, that we've heard this evening not fail to expose to themselves any who think they're Christians and have got it wrong. And they're actually hollow. And don't have your work on the inside. Please, Father, out of your love, show that to them. Expose it to them. Don't allow them to brush it aside and cause them to seek your love. And to find you, the God of love in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you. You are love. And you first loved us. So may we know more of that love poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given us. And so may that stir us up to more love in return. Love for you. Love for our fellow Christians. Love for the lost around us. And Father, may that love show in real, practical, ordinary life ways unspectacular and yet Christ like ways. We ask in Jesus name. Amen.